Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Lives podcast. The show that explores life purpose by taking you on a journey into different people's unique and somewhat squiggly worlds. We're your hosts, Helena and Claire. In our very first episode, we speak to Phoebe Lindner, a human rights lawyer, jazz singer, violinist and solo global traveller from Australia. She's recently contributed to a book series on lesbian and bisexual women and their place in history, culture and law in society worldwide, and has numerous published contributions to law journals. This was a truly fascinating conversation, and we cover a huge range of topics from human rights to stoicism, and from privilege to sources of joy. We delve deeply into subjects such as the law, traveling, finding your purpose, and following your passions. Enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on. Welcome, Phoebe. Um, and we're just going to dive straight in. And we got a few questions that we um, as we go along, but we just yep. want it to be a super informal chat, and we just want to hear about you and what you've been up to. Um, but we're going to dive straight in, and we saw recently that you contributed to a book, um, and we just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about that book and how you got um how you got into it and what it's about the title and yeah give us a bit of background on that um okay so uh actually this kind of the story really goes back to where Helly and you and I met um because when I was in the Netherlands on exchange almost 10 years ago now um I studied human rights law and honestly it the reason I got into this is a very long story about how this book came to be all the time in the world (laughs) (laughs) but essentially a friend of mine um, at Leiden University there had just spoken to one of her lecturers and was like hey I'm interested in this area of law Um, can I help you with anything and I thought that is such an awesome approach you know Um, it's really quite ballsy and quite like just to directly go to someone you admire and be like I want to work with you because I think you're great so when I got back from the Netherlands I did the same um when at my law school um Monash University there's um the Castan Center for Human Rights Law and I literally went to the head of that and said look I want to be a human rights lawyer whatever that meant I mean it's taken me the last 10 years to work out what that means but um, (laughs) And, uh, and I'd like to sort of be helpful and help someone. Anyway, so they put me on to Paula Gerber, who's an incredible, prolific, uh, and just wonderful human being. She's a academic at Monash, and she specializes in LGBT rights, and also children's rights, and, um, and a bit of refugee rights as well. So, so literally since then, I've been working as her research assistant and, um, and we've worked together and published lots of uh, articles and book chapters and that book, um, which is a, it's actually a three book series about lesbian um, and bisexual women and um, and their sort of place in history and culture and law. That's the three books, history, culture, and law in society worldwide. So it's, um, 
And I did, I helped her with three chapters for that. Um, the first one was about, and the main one that I really focused on was about decriminalizing homosexuality throughout the world and um, how, how best to do that. So um, using strategic litigation or using legislative reform um, or through sort of more kind of ad hoc political movements, um, how, how to make sure that people's lives are not criminalised, um, which is still the case in the, the figure changes you know, reasonably often as some countries decriminalise, but other countries are starting to criminalise even now. So, but it's, yes, wow. it's somewhere in the 70s. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that was my involvement in that book. So we've, um, Paula and I have had a great, you know, writing, creative and academic output and relationship for, yeah, for a long time now. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, some really deep, intense uh, topics there as well <laughs> to write about and to try and try and tackle. Have they been yeah. your interests since you first got, since you start, uh, first started studying at Leiden? When we were studying together, we were both um, at Leiden University and I was doing my master's and Phoebe was doing law. Um, yep. Was it an undergraduate in law? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and was that have they have you always had the same interest throughout from that very beginning then? Yeah. Honestly, I, I've been pretty focused. I suppose like I got into law initially, um, probably because I love philosophy, and I think that it's actually a very practical application of philosophy. Um, but also, I, I guess I've just always wanted to, I've always felt very um, incredibly grateful and privileged for the amazing education I've received um, and always felt like since I was a little kid, to be honest, um, a great sense of uh, duty, I suppose, to contribute something back and so uh, for me because I loved writing and I loved words and thinking uh in that way law was a you know a good way to do that and um and then in Leiden University I first studied um like human rights law and that really solidified it for me I suppose okay. um so you yeah. knew since you were young that you wanted to be a lawyer your dad was a lawyer, is that correct? My, yeah, my dad is a barrister. So I suppose I, we had a lot of, and my uncle is too. So over our Shabbat dinners on a Friday night, we'd have a lot of legal conversations. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I'm quite used to that way of thinking and that legal language and stuff. So I guess I also grew up in that context. Um, but it also just kind of suited, I, I do think, you know, um, finding finding your purpose is really also about identifying what skills you have, essentially, and, um, you know, uh, and, and working out what, how to use those skills in a useful way for society. 
So on the subject of skills, um, so you're also a really talented musician as well, as well as traveling, <laughs> traveling the world and, you know, you play multiple instruments. How do you balance all of those things? That's um, been a question I've asked myself <laughs> literally my entire life, honestly, <laughs> because I've been playing violin since I was three and a half. So music has always been like, I sort of don't know myself without playing music. Um, but uh, there have been periods of time where I, um, and particularly when I was living in London, actually. So when I was living in London, I, um, was working as a refugee lawyer, so representing asylum seekers to try and help them get refugee status. And, um, and that was so emotionally, spiritually draining that I just, I just didn't have any spiritual energy for creativity. And it's the only time in my whole life that I've not really been performing and not really even even practicing, I, I really wasn't almost at all for about two years. And, uh, and since I've moved back to Australia and started a new job, which is much less um, taxing, I hope still useful, but less emotionally and spiritually taxing, um, I'm absolutely enraptured. I love playing music again and I'm doing lots of gigs and it feels so wonderful. I feel like I'm finding uh, myself again, honestly. It's quite, yeah, it's quite amazing. Wow. So it sounds like for you to be fulfilling sort of your, your own essence, your truth, um, you need to be balanced, have that kind of work, social life balance in yourself as well to have that energy to be fulfilling yeah. all of these callings. And it also sounds that you, like you don't have one particular calling or purpose, which perhaps yeah. is a fallacy, it's up for debate, um, mm -hmm. but that you found all of these different routes that inspire you and fulfill you along the way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've I've been very confused <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. I did both a, a Bachelor of Music and a Bachelor of Law at the same time. So I've literally been debating this for a very long time, which, which path to go down. Um, in the end, I think I chose law because I felt that I, my particular skills I could be more useful um, using my skills and make a bigger difference through the law than through my music. I love playing music and I do think it's incredibly valuable. Like, I mean, none of us could have got through this pandemic without the arts, you know, without music, without film, without TV, without art, you know. So I truly, and I suppose my mum's an artist. So I guess that's the duality in me and in my upbringing as well. Um, but I truly believe in how important the arts are. And I think anyone who makes a living in it are so, so valuable and so incredible in our society. But I felt just for me, um, it, I, I just... Honestly, I didn't feel that 
I was ready to create music that was going to change the world, but I knew I could change the world through the law. So that's, that's just, but I still love it. And it's still very important to me to be playing. So, yeah. <laughs> that's really inspiring to hear that you, um, you obviously you battled with it for a long time, but then it's sort of um, without you having to make that concrete decision, kind of that, that knowledge came to you along the way that that's how you were best serving um you know our, our world or contributing to our world and it seems yeah. to just have happened organically by you just following your interests and your heart absolutely and I think that's that's really a lesson I need to repeat to myself often <laughs> is that you know you agonize over these decisions but in the end I think the right things just stick the right things just grow and form and and become um so you, I do think you need a level of trust in that yeah. yeah yeah there's a quote I can't remember the who it's by now or the exact wording of it of course um but a musician um that at some point we just need to stop making these big decisions we get to a point in life um yeah. I think as, uh, in our teens and in early 20s I'm sure I did um, we agonise about these decisions, but after a time, we just need to stop making them and just learn to flow with it and just listen yeah. to ourselves a little bit more and then it will, yeah. it will work itself out along yeah. the way. Before you know it, you've kind of fallen yeah. into your groove. Wow. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'd like to not, not go back a bit, but um, so ask you, so before you mentioned that you one of the reasons you got into law was um because of your love for philosophy and that law was like a, an applied philosophy so I just wondered if there were any philosophers or just philosophers on life that have helped you or helped guide you along the way and who those people or I guess belief systems were yeah um I mean I think the um, Marcus Aurelius and the meditations, the Stoics has been, I, I feel like um, when I read Marcus Aurelius's meditations for the first time, it was the spookiest experience. It genuinely felt like meeting myself 2000 years ago. He said so many things that I feel like I've just naturally felt and uh, it's very spooky to know that a Roman emperor 2,000 years ago thought those things. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the Stoics, their sort of view on accepting that not everything's going to be perfect and just actually just acknowledging that and letting it go is so fundamental to just getting through this life you know I suppose as a bit of a type a personality as well having done law and um, you do get a bit caught up in the details and uh, and I think that yeah the stoic philosophy of just acknowledging that things aren't perfect and just letting that go is incredibly important um, and actually on that topic I think the best book I read last year was um, Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart and it's 
I found it extremely confronting, actually. Um, it's kind of a radical letting go. It's it's really takes it to the extreme. But um, I found that very, you know, it it's sort of comforting to know that everything kind of fucks up at some point. Everything kind of just falls apart and you will be left there. You know, acknowledging, I think that the strength in both of those books is that acknowledgement that things do go wrong and kind of just being okay with that. Um, because, and that, you know, one of the best lessons, my incredible boss when I was working um, as a refugee lawyer in London, um, my boss was so wonderful in that she taught us that every mistake can be fixed, you know, and this was, we were working with very heavy, difficult material um, and, genuinely people's lives were affected by our mistakes and yet she gave us this incredible confidence in our own abilities and um, that everything can be fixed and everything will be okay as long as you you know you put in the effort you work hard but also there's a certain level of just letting go and letting be at the same time. More practically speaking about the law and philosophy I suppose it's also just about um, definitions and terms and being very precise about the words that you use um, and I love words so I suppose I, I was attracted in that way um, because a lot of philosophy is also about defining terms what what does you know what does life and meaning really mean or <laughs> um and then also moral philosophy, you know, how to be good, how to live a good life, how to, um, what is right and wrong and who is right and wrong. And, um, you know, a lot of my, my clients were um, detained in immigration detention um, and were going to be deported because they'd committed a crime. But, you know, in actual fact, they'd committed a crime because they were forced to be child soldiers in Congo when they were eight or, you know, so I think concepts of right and wrong and justice have always been um, very fascinating to me and the, the haziness of those concepts. That's brilliant. On the, yeah, Pema Chedron, I've read her books as well. And yes. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, in terms of Stoics, on the note of Stoics as well, have you read um, The Obstacle is the Way? Um, I have. I think it's by Ryan Holiday. And it, yes. it, um, it's a modern take and um, yes. draws from a lot of Stoic teachings as well. And I think yes, relates I to what you were saying as well. Just uh, yeah. it says what it does in the title as well. The Obstacle is the Way. Like we don't have to have everything perfectly set out for us. It's not this straight path. And in fact, sometimes those obstacles are like the route to keep on going and to not, not fall down at the first hurdle and not give up, but, um, yeah, to find growth, um, personal growth and inner growth from, from those obstacles that we encounter instead of seeing them as uh, yeah. issues or um, uh, like signs to go in another direction. We see them as a sign to keep on going in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. And that sounds like you use that teaching in um, your law career a great deal as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I actually get his um, daily stoic emails and they're mm-hmm. really great. They're sort of like a nice little morsel, a little taster um, each day and then a nice little reminder to like just bring you back um, to to the real, what's real. Yeah, yep. That's brilliant. Um, so along with law and music, I know you're a big traveler as well, and you've done a lot of solo travels around the world. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that and how that fits in with your career and your interests and um, if that influenced your career interests as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose a, a love of travel is another thing I've definitely inherited from my parents. I've been traveling my entire life. Um, and that's an incredible privilege, which I'm really grateful for, especially now being very locked down in Melbourne um, with our borders shut. And um, so I, I'm really living off those beautiful memories at the moment. Um, my first trip was when I was six months old and we went to Bali. So I really have been traveling literally my entire life. Um, and I think, um, and and all of our, when I was a little kid, all of our travels were really based around um, art and discovering local cultures through their art. We did a lot of travel around um, the, you know, Vanuatu and those islands um, up in the uh, sort of above Australia. Um and looking at their sort of tribal art and how that fit into their concepts of philosophy and magic and, um, you know, how it was used in rituals. And so that was really a important formative part of my childhood. We went to, my brother and I were the first white kids to go to a, a, a remote volcanic island in Vanuatu when I was about five and my brother was about two um and so things like that those really exotic kind of moments I think helped to open my eyes from a very young age about how huge vast the world is and how um extremely different people's worldviews are and that's always been something that totally fascinated me um which definitely influenced my decision to go into asylum and refugee law Um, because as you know obviously I really love to be able to help those individual people but I also must admit I loved that job because it was a wonderful excuse to learn about the politics in different countries the religion the um, you know and even things like mining and um, war and the different legal system. So it was a wonderful excuse to, it was almost like traveling through the the law. Um, But I've, yes, as you said, I've also, since I've been an adult, I've done a lot of travel on my own um, and, and with dear friends, of course. Um, But I, I really love traveling on my own. I think there's nothing like that feeling of just being in a place and 
having to survive. I mean, even finding food is a kind of an adventure <laughs> in those scenarios. Um, I've been to some crazy places. I went to Colombia on my own, much to my parents' terror. terror. <laughs> and, um, but I think as long as you're, you know, and I, uh, to be fair, as a single white woman traveling by myself, uh, I, I, I think their fears weren't completely unfounded, but I also truly believe you can't live your life in fear. You could be hit by a bus tomorrow, so you may as well just do what you like. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, and also as long as you follow your intuition in those cases, I think most of the time you're okay. And even if you're not, you'll figure it out. And that's okay too. It's, I suppose in those circumstances, it's the fundamentals of life that become important. You know, finding food, staying safe, getting from place to place. And yeah. like just the, I don't want to use the word simplicity of it, but the sort of um, the broken down to the like core essence of how, you know, just living our life and staying alive and um, living each day for each day's sake um instead of thinking about those big purposes and how we're contributing to the world but there must be yeah. a lot of satisfaction in that sort of just living each day and putting food on the table and yeah. meeting yeah. new people and absolutely um, yeah that's but there's also, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's nothing like traveling to really bring you into that moment, which I think is truly why I love it. Like there's nothing else that really, except perhaps performing, <laughs> um, which makes you so completely present or me at least. Um, I, I find that like, you know, all of a sudden, um, the colour of bricks or the, you know, way a branch hangs or you really notice those tiny things. And I remember them, you know, I I wouldn't remember how the branch hangs at the end of a street that I walk past every single day. But, you know, there's one square that I went to in Cartagena in Colombia and I went there. It was the most amazing feeling. I felt like I'd been there before. I, I, it was so strange. And I do remember the way the branches hung and I remember the smell and I remember the, almost the air, the atmosphere. Actually, then I went away and uh, did some research about the area. And it turned out that Gabriel Garcia Marquez had based one of his books in Cartagena um, and that specific square had been discussed in yeah. the book. And you'd read that book. And I'd read, I mean, he's one of my favourite authors ever. And I'd read that book. So in a sense, I had been there before, <laughs> which was quite amazing. Um, yeah. Love in the Time of Cholera. That was the book. So we've got a few questions, I guess, quick questions that we plan to ask everyone at the end. The first question in one word, what does the phrase finding your purpose mean to you? I think I would have to choose joy. And I don't mean that in a kind of like, woo sort of sense, <laughs> in a kind of sort of spiritual sense, I suppose. Like, um, I genuinely think like even, even doing the most difficult, hard, painful, refugee case 
there was sort of a sense of joy in everything I did. And I really think that's so important. Um, I, I'm not sure whether joy gives meaning or meaning gives joy, <laughs> or maybe it's both. Um, but I, I really feel like if you seek out and create joy in absolutely everything you do, um, whether it's, you know, making your porridge in the morning or going for a walk or performing on a stage or preparing submissions for a case, um, I think that's the most meaningful way to live for me. Super inspiring. If we all <laughs> bring ourselves into the present moment and try and find a sense of joy in everything that we do or conjure up a sense of joy in everything that yeah. we do. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's a lovely way of putting that. Um, so our second question is, what is the one book that you would love to share with as many people as possible? And you've mentioned a few books already, so feel free to... Yeah. We, yeah, and say the same book again. But. I must say Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, I think, was the book that has helped me through a lot of very difficult times. Um, it's, it's extremely easy to read and very practical for a 2,000-year-old dead Roman emperor. Um, so I really do highly recommend that as a book for everyone. It's sort of a way to get through those difficult times which are absolutely inevitable and a relinquishing of feeling like that's somehow your fault. It's very much, you know, things go wrong and that's okay. Um, so I think, yeah, that book is definitely the one that I think everyone should read. <laughs> and that's a book also for me that you don't need to read from front to back in one sitting no. or consecutively you can dip in and out of or just pick it up along the way and yeah. turn to any page in that book and just read absolutely absolutely for about a year I had a game with myself where I would literally like just open it up at a random page um and every time it had something useful and helpful to teach me so yeah definitely okay so next question is how would you like to be remembered um, <laughs> yeah it's a big one um I think someone who's done something helpful made a bit of a contribution to the world um and made it a better place in whatever I mean I don't have huge grandiose I think when I was younger I was probably more grandiose about my <laughs> ambitions but now like I'm just grateful that I could get some people asylum and and uh now I'm working on um I'm working for the Victorian Law Reform Commission actually um which is so fascinating and I it's a wonderful organization um and we're working on a project to uh help so, or to reform the law so that people who are deaf hard of hearing blind or with low vision can serve on juries in Australia um America has been doing it for 30 years. Um, New Zealand already does it. The UK does it more or less mm -hmm. and are in the process of changing their laws. Um, so uh, it's, it's a really fascinating project. Um, 
but I think so yeah so that's how I'm being useful at the moment (laughs) that's really Um, interesting could you say more about um what the process how how um like what the process is for for I guess changing the law yeah I actually yeah uh, it's a great question and actually my favorite one of my favorite things about this organization is the process itself um because for the last three months we've been doing extensive consultations with absolutely everyone that would be affected by the law law changing so um we've interviewed judges and court staff and barristers and solicitors and um, the juries commissioner, but also groups representing advocacy groups, blind groups, deaf groups, um, people who do sign language. Um, So that consultation process has been so organic and so fundamental to our law reform suggestions. And I just love that. Like it, it, Uh, until I was part of this organisation, which is part of the Victorian, the state government, um, but independent of it. So we um, do the consultations, then we write our recommendations, we give it to the Attorney General, and then she will table it in Parliament. Um, And then it's sort of, we wipe our hands of it. That's, That's the end of our involvement in the process. And we hope that they take on our recommendations. Um, But what has really impressed me about this organisation is that, you know, from the very head, the chair of the commission attends all of the community meetings with all of the, everyone from the judges to Joe Bloggs from the street, you know, and everyone is treated with the same equal respect and listened to in the same way and their opinions are valued exactly the same. So I think in that way, like law reform is really organically being created from the voices of the people who are going to be impacted. Um, yeah, so I love, I love this job. <laughs> um, but to conclude, to, to finish off my answer to your question, um, I guess the other part, other than being useful, I would like to be remembered for, for spreading joy as well. I think... Um, you know, in, I mean, you guys know me, (laughs) you know, like in everything I do, I do like want to, I just want to have fun and I want to laugh and I want to let go and just enjoy it. Life is short, you know? And uh, so I think that's really important to me um, that people can think of me with a smile. (laughs) Because whenever I think of UBB, definitely I think of joy and, um, yeah, I, I think of you helping people and I think of you bringing and spreading joy, for sure. Oh, thank you. I'm so very pleased. And our last question is, if you had to give someone one piece of advice or quote about, yep. um, in quote marks, finding your, finding your purpose, what would this be? Honestly, um, when I was in year 10 and uh, we had to pick our subjects for year 11 and 12, I decided, I, okay, I could do, you know, this and that, and that would lead me to this course and be very strategic. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to do the things I enjoy and believe that it's going to lead to other things I enjoy. And literally since I was 15 and I decided on that approach, I've really followed it. 
and um, you know, 15 years later, um, I'm still doing that really. I, my, you know, I've done a lot of different things. Um, I've done a music degree and a law degree. And I, when I was in London, I worked for Human Rights Watch and I worked for strategic litigation organizations. And then I worked as a refugee lawyer and I did consulting and now I'm working for the government. You know, it's very varied. And in at the time I sort of thought, oh, am I doing too many random things? But actually, I think, or I, I, I feel a bit naff quoting Steve Jobs in this point, but uh, I think it's a Steve Jobs quote where he says something like, you know, the dots don't join up until you're looking backwards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've really definitely felt that in my life. You know, I'm only 31, so it's not like I have a huge amount of time, but I've definitely found that I'm looking back I see how all of those things have really come together to make who I am and what I'm doing now. And I'm incredibly grateful actually to my younger self for being brave um, and doing things which were hard and maybe not like financially (laughs) intelligent, Um, but And that's, I have to acknowledge at this point, like that's an incredible privilege. Um, And I do acknowledge, you know, like it's only because I had family support and things. And I also, you know, had a great education that I was able to um, afford to do, you know, unpaid internships in London. I could talk for another hour about unpaid internships. Um, uh, But go into yeah please we've got we've got time um okay. love to <laughs> oh don't encourage me um <laughs> no I really think it's a farce I think it's outrageous that in order to be a success in a lot of areas especially music and law and especially in social justice areas that you have to work for free that's almost an unspoken rule and it essentially just enforces classism um you know everyone who I was I uh, so I moved to London for an unpaid internship at Human Rights Watch um we were looking at Australia's offshore detention center Nauru and uh, I was in the children's rights section um and it was absolutely eye-opening and atrocious um but that because I'd been working as a violin teacher for eight years I could only do that because I'd had incredible parents who paid for violin lessons for 15 years but 10 years before that so you know like I I really acknowledge the privilege that has led me to being able to do what I'm doing now and I think that's definitely a problem in the system that needs to be addressed um that can't be the only way, you know, I think a lot of organisations could be doing more to support people from different backgrounds, you know, um, who have faced different challenges in life, especially financial. I really think like um, if you don't have financial backing or the means to make good money, then you it's very difficult 
to get ahead, obviously. So um, those sorts of inequities need to be addressed. Um, and I think that organisations have a big responsibility to do that, especially in the human rights world. You know, it's a terribly ironic for human rights organisations to then be enforcing socioeconomic divisions. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's definitely something I've been well aware of and very, and that's why I acknowledge it very head on because I have privileged from this system so and I've always and I've been cognizant of that from a young age so I think I've always wanted to and felt quite a strong obligation and duty to use that to help people in whatever way I could um, but there's things that need to be fixed there <laughs> I can't remember how I got onto this tangent. I told you all. <laughs> it's okay. We can go off in other directions. <laughs> um, and then, so do you have any idea? My my sort of curiosity about it is: was that always the case that we're you know these sort of um, we're expected to work for free? Um, to get into the sector that we want um, and did that come about because the level of education was raised so there's a lot more people with degrees or masters so then it's the experience that then counts um, or I just wonder how how that all came about because I'm sure looking back you know 50 years or so that wasn't I feel like those opportunities if you want to use the word opportunities but um have only started coming about in the last in our generation maybe the last sort of 10 years where you know working for free these internships um for, you know six months or a year have become more and more prevalent mm. um, and I, I wonder, wonder yeah it's a great question I wonder whether previously there was even more divides and so someone with a lower socioeconomic status wouldn't have even received the education to even think about these careers mm -hmm. and the people who were in the upper you know socioeconomic groups would have just got the jobs because their fathers had the jobs or their uncles or their family knew someone or something like that so they didn't have to worry about these things so in a sense maybe you I think you're right like I think more people have master's degrees and stuff certainly in Europe um and so yeah maybe that is creating like in a way there are more people for those jobs and so there's more competition but I do think like that doesn't avoid the actual issue, which is that there are still people who are not receiving those opportunities who are just as intelligent, you know, um, the people I, and that was one of the most humbling, amazing things about working with asylum seekers is you realize how insanely privileged we are to have been, you know, born in the place that we were, in the family that we were, in, you know, it's just random luck. It's nothing that we've earned. It's not that we're 
better people. It's, you know, I worked with asylum seekers who were exactly the same age as me and they were incredibly intelligent, incredibly resourceful. I mean, you have to be in order to escape, you know, whatever circumstances you're escaping. So um, I think the asylum seekers I met were some of the most incredible people I'll ever meet. Um, and yet they're spending their lives in home office accommodation, trying to fight for food because they're living off 32 pounds a week. And, and yet they could be contributing so much more to society. That's just a, it's just about random luck. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that, um, that there is a lot of luck in life. Um, so you have to do with what, what, what you can with what you've been given. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's very, um, we're very privileged to even be able to follow what we enjoy Absolutely. Um, and have that opportunity to do just that. hundred um, percent. And I think that's a really important discussion um, to be had in these sorts of discussions, you know, like, there's a lot of talk about finding your life purpose and things in out there and on Instagram and, you know, like people, there's a lot of self-help stuff going on, but the reality is we're three white women who are extremely educated having this discussion and, um, and we've grown up in a certain level of privilege that a lot of people could not even dream of you know we're so on one hand you know like I can only speak from my own experience and I have done my very best throughout my life to use that to be helpful in whatever way I can but I completely acknowledge that that comes from so much privilege and I think that needs to be um repeated I mean I just think it needs to be infused into this discussion and also people need to think about how you know like how can we how can we help other people who don't have those privileges to follow their path to have the opportunities how what can we do and that might be small that might be like you know some kid from a local high school wants to do an interview with you or someone wants to have a coffee with you or um you know you talk to the organization you're working at to see if you could get a um an intern from I don't know some group or whatever like I think it is something we should all be actively thinking about um and acting on as well as thinking about um yeah we should all be afforded the same opportunities to be able to, you know, follow our direction in life. Yeah. There's one thing being born into different class systems or different cultures or different backgrounds and that I, I, that will always be the case that we're, you know, born yeah. into different environments. Sure. And then we should all be afforded those same opportunities yeah. to um, decide our route in life. Yeah. And, and those that, and, and us, that do have those opportunities we need to think about how we can afford them to others how we can support that process how we can break down those barriers 
Yeah, I think that's um, incredibly important. I'm glad we brought that, or you brought that up at the end, because it's something... Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seems probably the most better question. questions to ask, how can I be, how can, or a, a, an additional question, how can I be most useful? Which yeah. seems to be a common theme, rather than, well, as well as what is my passion, um, mm -hmm. that you're, you're looking externally, how can I be of service to others? Absolutely. And in fact, I think the joy that I was talking about before comes from being of service to others. If we're always inside ourselves, I think it's it's actually quite hard to self-generate that. But if we're in serving others, you're going to create joy between you and thus inside yourself and in them like it sort of becomes this beautiful tidal wave that goes through the whole community rather than all of us just like sitting in our own little worlds what does make what makes me happy or what's my path I think it's nice to like think outwards because actually if we're all doing that and we're all doing our best to help each other then it's going to be a nicer world to live in there's the concept of um, Indra's web um, of this, you know, huge spider's web, essentially. And in each little um, intersection of um, where each thread joins up, there's a little uh, glass dewdrop or, or water drop. Um, and every water drop reflects the other water drop. And it's just um, a mirror of it. And the whole thing creates so this big interconnection um, that we're all we're all joined together and we all see ourselves in each other and we all create you know there's this kind of huge web of interconnectedness throughout the world and if we see ourselves in isolation then um, you know maybe we're not um, serving uh, you know ourselves and our world as best as we can. Yeah, what a beautiful image. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, aren't we a nice little example of that? I mean, we're literally talking from three corners of the yeah. earth, <laughs> um, you know, and having converged in London and then, uh, you know, spread out all over the world that like, and we're all sort of reflecting and through reflecting on each other and, um and you know giving outwards to each other then we're coming to these insights so <laughs> yeah throughout your travels were there any cultures that you came across or um, communities that that had a much more collective approach to life because we're suppose yeah I mean our society is quite very individualistic it's very me me um yeah wrapped up in ourselves yeah but what your you seem to have a much more collective mm. approach or I just wondered if if any travels throughout your I guess childhood as well if, if anything mm. influenced or seeing those communities like influence your outlook yeah it's a great question I think it all influenced my outlook um I think also um 
probably my musical background is a lot part of it. And I'm just thinking about like musical cultures in other countries, you know, in in Colombia, in Cuba. I went to Cuba when I was 19 and, and they're like music and dance is completely infused in their culture. And, um, you know, the cutest thing was seeing like little boys being taught by their aunties how to do salsa when they're like, eight you know seven years old and uh and that real sort of and everyone would just like you'd pick up an instrument get in with the band then you put it down for a bit go off for a dance then you you know go and get a drink and have a chat to someone you don't know and I think like um oh I just I just loved Cuba I thought it was such a wonderful warm loving joyful inviting place to be and I, yeah, I've certainly tried to imbue that into my life. And, um, you know, um, I've just moved house and uh, except we're, we're currently in lockdown. We have been for the last two weeks. But until then, um, both me and my housemate have had lots of people over and we've been cooking for each other and we've been playing games. And, and I think um, that we can all bring it into our houses like it's about a generosity of spirit and I think um, my housemate and I were talking about it yeah the other day like actually there's a truth to housewarming like it genuinely makes a house quite different if you bring warmth in like bringing in friends and family and giving food and sharing food sharing wine sharing music and stories and games and and I think um, that communal spirit is so important. And I really think like it, you can, I mean, I'm also extremely introspective, don't get me wrong. Like I spend a lot of time by myself and I spend a lot of time journaling and I spend a lot of time meditating and thinking. So I also, I do think that's very important. Um, and I couldn't do one without the other, but when it comes to your purpose, I think that looking outward, looking at how we can bring happiness and joy to those around us, do something useful and meaningful is probably going to give yourself the most fulfillment and also help your community and the world the most. I feel like we've talked about so, so much and I could continue to ask more questions. <laughs> Um, but thank you so much Phoebe my thank pleasure you thank you so much, much for having me yeah. that was a fascinating conversation <laughs> and definitely given um, both of us a lot of inspiration to be going off and I hope everyone listening as well has some inspiration in it as well I'm sure they have um, but thank you so much for being our first guest <laughs> my pleasure thanks a lot Thanks for listening to the Squiggly Lives podcasts with your hosts, Helena and Claire. Head over to our website, squigglylives.com to subscribe and hear more shows. That's all for this episode. See you next time.